We just returned from a great trip out to Northern California where we saw friends in Sacramento and Redding and ended up in Medford, Oregon with Ivan and Erica Roman and Empowered Life Church. And that's what today's podcast is from, the message from that church. What an incredible group of people surrounded by the mountains there in the Rogue Valley of Oregon. We just found so much peace hanging out with them and spending time with them. And this word on the new covenant will go back to some foundations, hopefully, that you've laid in your life. And if you haven't yet, this is going to be really, really important for you. So here we go. Empowered Life Church last Sunday. We always got to come back to, whenever you forget who you are, you always got to come back to origin. And that is the, the, the point, the starting point for how you ever even begin to be here, to live and move and have your being as a human in this life. We all started in, in one amazing moment where God creates. And this is the way God creates. When he creates, he does so through speech. He is the word. And so the word releases sound. It's a sound of his very spirit to create a physical realm. There's the realm of the scene. That's the one we are living in right now that we're most aware of. But then there's a realm that is beyond this that is more real called the realm of the unseen. And the realm of the seen, that's this one here, left alone, will eventually just decay and deteriorate and go away and pass away. But the realm of the unseen is eternal and never breaks down. It's, it's always filled with glory. And so we are more alive in that realm than we are in this realm. Okay? That's why you can actually face sickness or disease in this body and still have joy. Why? Because you're anchored in the unseen realm. And when you live anchored in that realm, the wealth of healing, wholeness, and provision from that realm starts leaking into this one, all right? And so when you live from that realm, sickness can sort of like touch your body, go, hey, I'm here, and you're like, yeah, whatever. You're just like in worship mode, and pretty soon it just sort of sloughs off. That's why when I talk about the goodness of God like this, and we start pulling people out of an awareness of the seen realm into the unseen realm, people just get healed automatically, why? Because there's no sickness in that realm. And so you might be surprised to find at the end of the service, you look, look and go, oh, I had chronic pain and that's gone. wonder when that got healed. Why? Because the battlefield of the new covenant is actually perceptions of the mind. It's the way we think. Okay? So as God renews our mind, then we change the way we think, then something happens in us that completely shifts and shakes and makes, shakes up our DNA. All right? So, Kind of important. It's not mind over matter. It's not it. It's deeper than that. It's it's being so deeply connected to the spirit. I'll give you an illustration of this in a bit. But when God creates, He creates through sound. He speaks environment, water, land. He's speaking to create everything. And then, as He creates this environment, He then makes life. He speaks to create an environment. And then he speaks directly into the substance of the environment that he's made to produce life that is meant to live, move, and have its being and thrive within that environment. Like, wow, that's complicated. So let me simplify it. When he wants to make fish, he just talks to water. Here's the phrase, let the sea bring forth. And everything that's meant to live and move and have its being in that environment starts swimming around. When he wants to make plants and animals, he looks at the environment of the earth and speaks directly into it and says, let the earth bring forth. Plants and animals start doing what they do in that environment. Then the pattern changes. 
And God says this phrase, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. When he says let us, he's not talking to the angels because you're not made in the image and likeness of an angel. This is God as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God as an other-centered, self-giving relationship of love mirrored and modeled within the human family. Father, mother, child, father, spirit, son. The image of God is family. That's, that's actually why the devil attacks families so strongly. Because if he can destroy the family, then he can destroy the clearest representation of the image and likeness of God that we have on earth. So that the next generation grows up really confused about what he's like. That's why family dysfunction is, is so anti-kingdom. Fight for families, guys. Big deal. So, God, Father, Spirit, Son, say, let us make man, Adam, in our image and after our likeness. Why is this important? Because the environment God speaks to, to create life, tells that life where they are to draw all of their essence from. And so when he makes fish, he talks to water. When he makes plants and animals, he talks to the earth. When he made man, he spoke to himself. He spoke to the environment of himself. Paul said it like this. In him, we live and move and have our being. But it was deeper than that. This is now the first time God gets his hands dirty. And so God, who is spirit, takes his hands, puts it into the dust and the mud and sand of earth, and he forms a man. Never does this with any other creature, by the way. He forms a human being out of mud and then lifts him to his face. The Bible says God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life. So here's what happens. The breath of God is a word. It sounds like this. Yahweh. It's the Holy Spirit. The very, the very first breath we ever took as humanity was the Holy Spirit. You understand? We were birthed as a people to be filled with the Spirit of God. And we go like this. This being of mud goes, <gasps> and we open our eyes to have our very first conscious experience that we ever have as human beings, to behold the face of a father who adores us. That is our origin. That right there. Now, atheistic scientists and philosophers will actually tell you that embedded within the very molecules and DNA of our cells is memory that goes back generations, which is what makes it so exciting for me to talk about this. Because 
I believe, embedded within the very fabric of the essence of every atom in your being is a memory that goes all the way back to the point where we went, <gasps> Dad. I mean, some of you are probably listening to me talk like this and going, why do I remember this? Why does this story feel so familiar now? Because somewhere in the very fabric of your being, you and I know that we belong in a face-to-face -face encounter with God. He's like, no, nobody can see God and live. Yeah, you know, everybody thought that. And then one day God came to David and went, seek my face. Your face I will seek. Why was that such a big deal? Because the idea was that nobody can see God and live. And God comes to David one day and looks at him and goes, seek my face. David's probably like, that's funny. Because nobody can look at you and live. Seek my face. But if I look at you, I'll die. Seek my face. You're already dead. You want to come to life? Seek my face. Breathe my breath. Hear my voice. <laughs> David, here's a new covenant challenge in the middle of the old covenant to seek the face of God. <laughs> this entire book, by the way, this whole book, is a record of covenants. And this is what I want to talk to you guys about today is people made in the image and likeness of God. One of the things we've got to learn is how to live this new covenant world. Because even 2,000 years after the cross, the large majority of the body of Christ has received new covenant grace by faith. In other words, we've received new covenant salvation, but we live old covenant relationship with God. And what I mean by that is that we are consistently waiting for God to drop the hammer on us. Don't think so? I hear it preached all the time. I mean, these constant warnings of hammers coming, I call it the God's about to crowd. God's about to, there's some good and there's some bad. And we always control people's behavior with the bad. God's, well, you better watch it. God's about to, God's about to. And I'm like, hey, remember that one time in the Bible when God wiped out all the evil people just to show us that the way you deal with sin is not to kill everybody who's evil. It doesn't work. You got to come up with a, another solution. For, for whatever reason, we still, it's like we want God to come, come back and go Noah's Ark on everybody because we think that's going to fix the problem. He's like, hey, I gave the earth a bath once. That didn't work. That should have told you something. we got to deal with the problem of sin a different way, and he did. And so here's what happens. The covenants show up, and, and the, each covenant ends up putting God on display better than the previous covenant thought was possible. He's always pushing the envelope of our perception of his goodness. So just when we think we've seen how good he can be, we get a new covenant, and he gets better. He shows up better. Now, there's not a new covenant after this covenant. This is called the, I would call this the Christic covenant. That's what classical Christianity for the first thousand years called the new covenant because it was not seen as a covenant made between God and you. 
The covenants were always named after what they called the testator or the person that God made the covenant with. So he made a covenant with Moses. There's the Mosaic covenant. Makes a covenant with Abraham. It's the Abrahamic covenant and so on and so forth. In Christ, you get a different picture here. God decides not to make a covenant with any other person out there. God, instead, the word becomes flesh, dwells among us, steps into our story, steps into the sacrificial place to become the perfect sacrifice for us. God himself becomes the sacrifice for us to end the sacrificial system and shut down the old covenant once and for all. And Isaiah 42.6 says, God says here through Isaiah, he says, I will give, speaking of himself as Messiah, I will give you, speaking of Jesus, as a covenant for the people. So what God is revealing here is that the next covenant to come was not going to be made between him and an earthly man. It was going to be made between him, father, and son. So the new covenant, the Christic covenant, is the covenant of God made between God the Father and God the Son. You say, what's the big deal with that? Well, you didn't make it. So you can't break it. That's what makes it eternal and everlasting because he's not going to break it with himself, right? And so you're like, well, okay, well, how do I take advantage of that covenant then? Well, here's the deal. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says, by his doing, you are in Christ. Everybody always asks the question, what do I do? Trust Jesus. Trust what he does did. By his doing, you are in Christ. You're like, I thought I invited Jesus into my heart. No, no, no. He invited you into his. When the veil was torn, beautiful symbol, you're like, did it let God out or did it let man in? The answer is yes. <laughs> All the barrier of distance and separation suddenly dissolved, and you and I found ourselves in a place of divine union and face-to-face -face communion with no veil between us anymore. It's picture like Hebrews says it like this. Hebrews 6 says that the veil was his flesh, right? The torn veil. We are entered into a new and living way through the veil of his flesh. We're the ones entering. Picture Jesus ripping open his chest, and all of a sudden there's a vacuum. And you leave your life outside. Why? Because his is so much better. Just here's the deal. This is what discipleship is. Look at Jesus and don't stop looking. We fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. We behold him. And the message of behold him has never been easier than it is right now. It's so easy right now. To behold Jesus, to see him. And there's no striving into it. Some people, you know, you'd say, behold Jesus. And they start squinting and furrow their brow and get <laughs> like they're trying to boil an egg from across the room with their mind. <laughs> Here's behold him. Reconciled rest in the heart of the Father.
Let's live in reconciled rest in the heart of the Father. Say, how come 2,000 years after the cross, we haven't gotten this yet? Let me give you a history lesson. This is fun. For the first 1,000 years of Christianity, salvation was what Jesus did on the cross. And the cross did something really amazing, and that is defeated sin, death, and hell. The cross was aimed squarely at sin, death, and hell. And the resurrected Christ had taken us into the grave and brought us out with him to stand in this world as a representation, as the Father sent me, I send you, to put the very nature and the character, the grace, the love, the power of God on display. That's why Jesus says in John 17, 4, he says, I finished the work. You ever think of the finished work before the cross? There's a finished work before the cross. He says, I finished the work you gave me to do because I've glorified your name on the earth. And that means, I, name is identity. That means I accurately showed this world who you are. All right? Now, as the Father sent me, I send you, means that that's what we are called to do. Ephesians 3.21 says to him, be glory in the church. So we are called to accurately represent who Jesus is. And because we have had a hard time doing that, the world still remains confused about God. And so, for the first thousand years of Christianity, the cross is aimed squarely at sin, death, and hell. And around the 11th century, there's this guy named St. Anselm. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury in England. And St. Anselm was trying to somehow get the gospel across to his nation. And the system of government of the day allowed for these feudal lords who sort of lorded over the land, in various counties, we might say, in our, our culture, but various villages and provinces and whatnot. And these feudal lords had a system where if they were offended by law, they could not forgive the offender. They had to demand satisfaction for offense against their honor. And so St. Anselm grabbed the culture of his day and told the people, this is what God is like. His honor has been offended by your sin. And he demands satisfaction. So somebody has to pay the debt of that offense. Enter Jesus who paid the debt of the offense of your sin against the feudal Lord sitting on the throne. Sounds like an effective illustration. And it did actually unveil the gospel to a lot of people in his day. But inadvertently, this is what happened. And that is, he took the cross that was aimed at sin, death, and hell and the defeat of those, and he added a new enemy to the cross. He turned to aim the cross, fundamentally changed how we view sin. Sin was now a legal matter. And can I tell you, sin's not a, spiritually speaking, sin's not a legal issue. It's a medical issue. That's why Jesus, when he was hanging out with sinners, said, the sick need a doctor. Because the minute sin goes from being a spiritually medical issue to being a spiritually legal issue, now we got to figure out how we fix it. So we came up with all kinds of theories. 
Jesus satisfied the Father's anger. Now we have the satisfaction theory of atonement. Jesus became the substitute for us, substitutionary atonement. Jesus took the punishment of the cross. The cross was the Father punishing the Son with his wrath. John Calvin grabs a hold of this and said, it was necessary for the Son to feel the full weight of divine fury. And so that theology was carried into the West. By the way, for the first thousand years of Christianity, that, that didn't exist. It was relatively simple. But the Catholic Church grabbed a hold of this and was like, aha, this is a fundraiser. Mm-hmm. Because now that sin is a legal issue and it's not a medical issue, not something to be healed by the Spirit of God, it's something to be paid for by the efforts of Jesus and you together. I mean, you got to do your part, right? Now we're going to come up with parts that you do. So, so here's the way it works. Uh, uh, the, the, first, the first major idea that hit the Catholic Church was this. Here's the way we're going to deal with sin. We're going to say that when you get baptized, every sin prior to baptism is taken care of by that singular act because it identifies with the cross. However, that doesn't take care of future sins. Once you sign up, once you get baptized and you're in the club, it's like a bad timeshare. You, you don't find out about the hidden maintenance fees until after you've signed on the dotted line, right? So, <laughs> listen, I live in Florida. We know timeshares, right? So, so that's the deal. So what do we do? We sign on, we, we suddenly get baptized, and now they tell you, aha, ha, ha, now, 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 see, the sins after baptism, those aren't taken care of. you got to pay for those. So you throw down some money so that you can indulge in sin. Get you like your prepaid and phone card. It's indulgences, right? You know, the problem was that, that that's what it was. It's like pe- people, people didn't want to get baptized when they heard about this arrangement. Why? Because they looked a couple of months in the future and said, man, I got some parties and weddings I got to go to. I'm probably going to do some pretty major sinning. I'm going to put off baptism until later on so that I can, I can get them all covered in one shot for free. Well, the church went, oh, people are putting off baptism. They found a loophole. Can't have that. So, so in, listen, this is where it got crazy. They came up with a system of scaring people into getting baptized as quickly as possible. And they grabbed a hold of an invitation to have a relationship with God that comes from a place of fear. And many of you came to Jesus not because you love God, because you were scared of hell. And the problem with that as a motivation is that it produces powerless Christians. Because just as perfect love casts out fear, laying hold of fear as a foundation of faith makes love seem like a message you don't even need in your life. And so I still have people that come up to me, you just preach all this, and they get this weird voice, especially in Texas. All you do is preach love. (laughs) You preach gracey grace. I say, absolutely, grace is full of the oil of heaven. I'm not going to preach dry grace. If you don't preach greasy grace, you're not preaching it right. Grace is absolutely greasy. Oh, my goodness. It soaks you in the oil of intimacy with God to the point where you don't have time to sin anymore. 
When you fall in love with Jesus, sin loses its attraction. Do you understand what I'm saying? When it's all about fear, you'll walk like this going, oh, my goodness, I hope I don't sin. Did I commit a sin of omission? That's the ones you didn't do. It's either commission or omission, all these new words. It's crazy. It's like, oh, I'm sure I sinned today. So people would literally walk around saying this praise, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. This was like a thing. You just do this every second because between the prayer, you might sin. And so for hundreds of years, we have little tiny records of the occasional person who will break out of that and go, we're in a new covenant. I'm trusting Jesus 100% for the grace for my life. I'm letting go of the fear, and I'm grabbing a hold of the grace and the love. Not only that, but I've discovered that there's power in this, and miracles would start happening around these people. We, we called them saints after they were dead, but when those people stood up and looked at the church and went, uh-uh, no, this system you guys have got that's putting people in bondage is not the gospel. We put them in jail, and we kill them. Do you understand that the reason that the apostles died was because not because they were preaching Jesus. They weren't preaching Jesus and dying for it. They were preaching new covenant Jesus. What's the difference, you say? Because to preach the new covenant was to confront an established religious system that was revenue generating because of man-made ideas. And to look at him and go, Jesus is your Savior. Put your trust in Jesus. And here's how you put your trust in Jesus. It's what the entire book of Hebrews talks about. Shut down all of the practices associated with your former covenant living. Nobody would have killed Paul if he would have just gone out and said, add Jesus to what you're already doing. Go ahead, keep sacrificing. It's fine. Nobody would have hurt any of the disciples if they would have gone to other nations, looked at a, an occultic-based religious system of works to try to get close to God. Nobody would have hurt them if they would have just said, add Jesus to what you already do. Supplement your belief system with Jesus. Now, what they preached, we're putting your trust in Jesus, and that is you stop doing everything you used to do. You understand, it wasn't, it wasn't just about turning from sin and turning to righteousness and holiness. It was about turn away from all of the work-based ideology of your previously held belief system to simply rest in nothing but Christ alone. And if you're a Jew and your entire life has been sacrificing bulls and goats and you suddenly one day decide not to sacrifice, your entire family looks at you and goes, what are you doing? Jesus is the final sacrifice. There's nothing left for me to do. Yeah, but, you know, maybe you should just, like, go and sacrifice a goat just, just to be on the safe side. No, no, no. no that, that'll testify that I don't actually believe in the Sioux Covenant. What I need to actually do is stop doing this. And the religious system starts going, sales of bulls and goats are down 34%. What's happening here? These guys are going around telling everybody just trust in Jesus. They're not supporting the system anymore. And so what happens? we got to kill these folks. Everybody loves Jesus if you just add him to what you're doing. But when you pull your pentagrams off and give your crystals to goodwill, 
start going, ooh, it's all Jesus. Jesus, 100%, I trust you with everything in my life. Listen, I'm coming to the end of our podcast today, but I want to ask you this question. Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? Have you surrendered your life to say, Jesus, I receive your grace? If not, I encourage you to do that today, even right now. Just say, Jesus, I receive your grace by faith. And Lord, I even ask for the faith to believe. And now fill me with your Holy Spirit as I lay down my life and let you take over. Guide me with your Spirit. Thank you for forgiving me of all of my sins. Thank you for being my Lord and my Savior. And today and from now on, you are my salvation forevermore. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me, for loving me, for receiving me just as I am, but changing me. Lord, I just thank you for changing us from the inside out. You don't leave us the way you find us. You change and transform our lives. So Lord, today I trust that lives are being transformed by your grace, by your love. Thanks, Jesus. Amen. Listen, if you did that today, you prayed with me today, and from your heart you meant it, I want to hear from you. You can write to us at Faith Mountain Ministries, Box 595, Marshall, Minnesota, 56258. Or go to BillVanderbush.com and fill out the booking form. And that will come straight to my office. We also have a conference coming up next year called the Kingmakers Conference in, in Edinburgh, Scotland at Carberry Tower. Go to BillVanderbush.com, jump on the Kingmakers UK link, sign up today, and you'll get a discount, and you'll also get a special gift when you arrive. Listen, this is going to be a powerful event with Jim and Mary Baker and Tracy and I. We're going to love being there with you, so sign up today. Thanks so much for listening. This is Bill Vanderbush from all of us here at Faith Mountain Ministries. Until next time, may the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.